Well, amen. If you have a copy of God's Word, I'd encourage you to find Genesis chapter 36. Genesis chapter 36. And let me start, before we dive into that, let me start with a few announcements. Again, next weekend is big with our friends and family weekend, and there's flyers by the exit. I encourage you to take those and give them to everybody you know, and even people you don't know, (laughs) to hand those out and encourage folks to be here. Two things I do ask with that. First, if you're able to serve on Saturday at all for our block party, in the evening, uh, please sign up today at the bulletin board right outside the door, and we'll connect with you this week for the place to serve. We need you to help serve. Whoever you are, uh, whatever your skills may be, we need your help. Second, for next Sunday, again, Jameis Edwards will be here preaching in service. Jameis is a Trigg County native and pastor of Preaching and Vision at Pleasant Valley Community Church in Owensboro. And we are expecting an increase in attendance next Sunday. So I'd encourage you to try to be here a little early and to be prepared to make room for everyone God will bring to us. There may be people, uh, new folks here. So if you see new faces, greet them, help them know where they're going. And then may, may we be a church that welcomes the stranger and loves our neighbors. And finally, This is actually our last week in the book of Genesis for the year, and we'll be back next year and pick up in Genesis 37 and the story of a guy named Joseph. But in the meantime, I'm excited to begin a new sermon series on July 25th called The Church, called The Church. And if COVID-19 has taught us anything, it is about how important the church is. We're going to get back to the basics, looking at what a church is, what her mission is, how it should be organized. And the Bible not only speaks about these things, but I believe God has spoken clearly to us about them. And so I'm looking forward to a great several weeks ahead. So Genesis 36, find that, and we'll find that in true Genesis fashion, we meet a genealogy here. But as we read this list of names and attempt to pronounce them the best we can, we discover that there is far more here than meets the eye. So Genesis chapter 36, we'll read the whole chapter together. These are the generations of Esau, that is Edom. Esau took his wives from the Canaanites, Ada, the daughter of Elon the Hivite, Aholabama, the daughter of Anna, the daughter of, Z- of Zibion, the Hivite, and Basemith, Ishmael's daughter, the sister of Nabaeth. And Ada bore to Esau Eliphaz, Basemith bore Reuel, and Aholabama bore Jeush, Jalem, and Korah. These are the sons of Esau who have been born to him in the land of Canaan. Then Esau took his wives, his sons, his daughters, and all the members of his household, his livestock, all his beasts, and all his property that he had acquired in the land of Canaan. He went into a land away from his brother Jacob, for their possessions were too great for them to dwell together. The land of their sojourning could not support them because of their livestock. So Esau settled in the hill country of Seir. Esau is Edom." These are the generations of Esau, the father of the Edomites in the hill country of Seir. 
These are the names of Esau's sons, Eliphaz, the son of Adah, the wife of Esau, Reuel, the son of Basemith, the wife of Esau. The sons of Eliphaz were Teman, Omar, Zapho, Gadam, and Kenaz. Timnah was the concubine of Eliphaz, Esau's son. She bore Amalek to Eliphaz. These are the sons of Adah, Esau's wife. These are the sons of Reuel, Nahath, Zerah, Shammah, and Mizah. These are the sons of Basemith, Esau's wife. These are the sons of Aholabamah, the daughter of Anna, the daughter of Zibion, Esau's wife. She bore to Esau, Jeush, Jalem, and Korah. These are the chiefs of the sons of Esau, the sons of Eliphaz, the firstborn of Esau, the chiefs, Teman, Omar, Zepho, Kenaz, Korah, Gautam, and Amalek. These are the chiefs of Eliphaz in the land of Edom. These are the sons of Adah. These are the sons of Reuel, Esau's son, the chiefs, Nahath, Zerah, Shammah, and Mizah. These are the chiefs of Reuel in the land of Edom. These are the sons of Basemith, Esau's wife. These are the sons of Aholabamah, Esau's wife, the chiefs, Jehush, Jalem, and Korah. These are the chiefs born to Aholabamah, daughter of Anna, Esau's wife. These are the sons of Esau, that is Edom, and these are their chiefs. These are the sons of the seer of, of, of Seir the Horite, the inhabitants of the land, Lotan, Shabal, Zibion, Anna, Dishon, Ezer, and Dishan. These are the chiefs of the Horites, the sons of Seir and the land of Edom. The sons of Lotan were Hori and Hemim, and Lotan's sister was Timnah. These are the sons of Shobal, Alvin, Mahath, Ebal, Shepho, and Omnin. These are the sons of Zibion, I, and Anna. He is Anna who found the hot spring in the wilderness as he pastured the donkeys of Sibion, his father. These are the children of Anna, Dishon and Aholabama, the daughter of Anna. These are the sons of Dishon, Hemdan, Eshban, Ithran, and Charon. These are the sons of Ezer, Bilhah, Zavin, and Achan. These are the sons of Dishon, Uz, and Aaron. These are the chiefs of the Horites, the chiefs Lotan, Shobal, Zibion, Anna, Dishon, Ezer, and Dishan. These are the chiefs of the Horites, chief by chief in the land of, of Seir. These are the kings who reigned in the land of Edom before any king reigned over the Israelites. Bala, the son of Beor, reigned in Edom. The name of his city was Ben-Haba. Bela died, and Jobab, son of Zerah of Basra, reigned in his place. Jobab died, and Husham of the, and Husham of the land of Temanites reigned in his place. Husham died, and Hadad, son of Badad, who defeated Midian in the country of Moab, reigned in his place, the name of his city being Avith. Hadad died, and Samla of Mishrika reigned in his place. Samla died, and Shual of Rehoboth of, on the Euphrates reigned in his place. Shal died, and Baal Hanan, the son of Akbor, reigned in his place. 
Balhanan, son of Agbor, died, and Hadar reigned in his place, the name of his city being Pau. His name was Mehetabel, the daughter of Matred, daughter of Mehazab. These are the names of the chiefs of Esau, according to their clan and their dwelling places. By their names, the chiefs, Timnah, Alva, Etheth, Aholabama, Elah, Penan, Kenez, Timon, Mibzar, Migdal, and Iram. These are the chiefs of, es- of Edom, that is Esau, the father of Edom, according to their dwelling places in the land of their possession. This is the word of God. Let me say, we've come to these genealogies time and time again through the book of Genesis. This is one of the benefits of verse-by-verse preaching, because you may have never even given a thought to someone named Hololobama in your life, and what her inclusion in the Bible has anything to do with you, right? But we truly believe 1 Timothy chapter 3 tells us that all Scripture, all of it, is God-breathed and useful us. So this genealogy is useful for us. It's written for our instruction, our edification, our correction, and our life change. And, and I believe that this genealogy brings us to ask the question, how would you define success for yourself or success for your family? And in fact, for many, success can be hard to define, but much easier to picture You may not be able to put it into words, but you can point at someone and go, that's an example of it. Some of us look look on Instagram and we see Instagram influencers and we say, that's what success looks like. We see a small business owner, and we say, that's what it is. We look at movie stars or, or, or leaders in the world, and we go, that's what it looks like. But we also can recognize the the drive of someone who wants to be successful. Because, sure, some people get success handed to them, but most people who have some form of success have put in long nights, early mornings, and lots of hours in between. They have something that pushes them, that causes them, to use the words of the Apostle Paul, to run the race. And the Word of God would ask us two questions. It would ask us first, what race are you running? But also, how are you running it? What are you pursuing in your life? And how are you pursuing it? Anyone here who plays any sort of sports or have any sort of hobby or skill knows you don't become a better athlete, a better artist, a better musician, whatever it is, you don't become better at it without lots of effort. And so success, no matter how you define it, takes intentional effort. And the Bible presents us with pictures of success, both worldly success and true God-glorifying success. We see success in the kingdoms of man and success in the kingdom of God. And, and that God's word actually wants to transform your perspective on how you view the glitz and glamour of the world and to think less about this brief earthly life and to think more about your own eternal life. And Genesis 36 is given to us as a picture of what success in the kingdoms of the world looks like, but also the sinful legacy it can often produce. Genesis 36 is meant to transform how you view the world around you. Though at first glance, all we probably see is a genealogy, a list of very difficult to pronounce names. (laughs) 
But when we stop and reflect, there is so much more going on here. In fact, I'd argue that every time you come to a genealogy, whether in the book of Genesis or anywhere in the Bible, it's God wanting to remind you to slow down and to chew on what you're reading. It's God saying, hold up, my word is not meant to be meandered through, but meditated on. And so as we meditate together, we'll see that Genesis 36 summarizes for us the impact of a guy named Esau, both his worldly success and his sinful legacy, because from Esau would come not simply a family, but also a nation. And this chapter begins with Esau and his sons and moves to tell us all about the chiefs and the kings that would come to the nation of Edom. And so you'll see first in your notes, Genesis 36 begins with a summary of Esau's life. Esau's life. And recall that Esau was the twin brother of Jacob, born just moments apart. Esau was the oldest, and he was born with Jacob grasping at his heel from womb, from the womb throughout their whole life. Esau and Jacob were in constant conflict. In fact, Rebekah, their mother, here's what she was told, Genesis 25, 23. She was told this, two nations are in your womb and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. So even before either of them were born, God had charted out this destiny for them, that despite Esau being the oldest, and thus the one who would inherit all of the promises given to Abraham, to Isaac, and now to to this son, he, Esau, would not receive the promises, but his younger brother Jacob would. And what occurred in Genesis 25 to 36 through the life of Jacob and Esau is an outworking of this prophecy. Jacob ends up stealing the birthright and stealing the blessing that were meant for Esau, all while showing us that Jacob is in fact the chosen, prom- the chosen son of promise while Esau was rejected. Esau and Jacob are examples for us meant to be contrasted. And Genesis 36 makes this clear. Look at verse 1. Genesis 36, verse 1. These are the generations of Esau, that is, Edom. Then flip over 37, verse 2. Look at this. These are the generations of Jacob. So if you notice, they're trying to contrast them here. They're putting them in these similar terms to go, okay, think about the generations that came through both of these guys, their conflict and their contrast. Jacob, we know, had 12 descendants, and in 36, it's Esau has over 70 descendants listed here. Esau seems to be, to the naked eye, far more prosperous than Jacob. We see all of this glorious kingdom that came through Esau That the one who'd been rejected for the promise appears to be the one who has it all. He has a nation. He dwells in a land of his own. He's fruitful with his legacy. And yet even in the midst of that, Esau wasn't, wasn't just not the promised son, but we see that his life is defined and remembered by his sin. And Moses organizes this genealogy in such a way as to call our minds back to three past events in the book of Genesis. First, consider that that Genesis 36 defines Esau by his Babel-like pride. His Babel-like 
pride. This is very subtle here, but recall that the last genealogy to have 70 descendants in it was in Genesis chapter 10, which is where the nation scattered because of the events of the Tower of Babel. And I think Moses wants us to think about this, that Esau and the country of Edom, which would come through him, is described over and over and over again as a picture of pride that rejects God, that Edom is like Babel, puffed up with pride, trying to build their way to blessing and build their way to God. It's subtle, but the comparison's there. Consider what the prophet Obadiah has to say. Obadiah sheds some light on the character of Esau. And look at this. This is Obadiah chapter 1. Look at this. The vision of Obadiah. Thus says the Lord concerning Edom. This is the nation that would come through Esau. We have heard a report from the Lord and a messenger has been sent among the nations. Rise up. Let us rise against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rock, in your lowly dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. See that? So, Esau's pride is seen in that the nation he produced was prideful and rejected God, but it was also seen in his own life. Esau lives in complete rebellion against his father Isaac and everything he taught about God and the promise. He sold access to the promise for a bowl of soup and lived the rest of his life bitter over it and seeking to run far away from the promise he sold. Esau and the table of nations are shown to have 70 descendants, something the world would have seen as successful, yet both were so far away from God. Let this passage warn you about the dangers of pride, the danger of giving yourself the glory for your life, the danger of living according to your own authority and making yourself the Lord over your life, of taking what what Frank Sinatra made popular and declaring to God that I did it my way. And to say that you're the center of your universe and your happiness and your purposes are the center of your own existence. See, pride makes much of us. Humility makes much of God. And Esau and his line here, it should stand out to us that there is not a single mention of them calling on the name of the Lord anywhere. Esau and the nation that came through him are remembered for their pride. And Proverbs 18.12 warns us that pride comes before the fall, before destruction. A man's heart is haughty or prideful, but humility comes before honor. Look at what James chapter 4 has to say. It's in, in strong terms, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. If you're proud, if you're puffed up in your own self, in your own way, it says God opposes you. He stands against you. And what separated Jacob and Esau was ultimately that Jacob eventually humbly received the grace of God while Esau held firm in his hard and prideful heart. We need to pray the words of John the Baptist over our life. John 3.30, he says that 
God must increase, but I must decrease. We must pray that over our life because the temptation to make much of ourselves is everywhere. The temptation to build ourselves up in pride and to live our whole life giving no credit to God for any of it, it, it's everywhere. So we must not be like Esau, proud like Babel and like the people of Babel were. But we also need to see that the text highlights that he's not just like Babel, prideful and puffed up, but the text also talks about his Ishmael-like marriages. His Ishmael-like marriages. Look at, look at verse 2. Look what happens here. So Esau took his wife, his wives, from the Canaanites. And then we get their names here. And we see that he married these women and has sons through them. And we see that Esau, like his uncle Ishmael, took wives from the Canaanites. Rather than marrying women who loved God and his promise, he married women of the land who worshipped idols and lived perverse lives. Recall that Esau is marrying in to the same family of Shechem who we saw two chapters ago were brutal people of the land. In Genesis 34, when we had that very dark sermon there, this is the people he's marrying into. Brutal people. We see that Esau even marries into the family of Ishmael in verse 3. And Esau, like Ishmael, his uncle before him, took wives from the people of the land. And the greatest issue was that by doing so, he adopted the faiths of the people of the land. And Esau didn't just marry one of these women, he married multiple of them. He had multiple wives from among these people. In fact, it's interesting, some of the wives named in chapter 36 are different than the wives named back in chapter 26. This could either be that these women had multiple names, or that Esau simply had that many wives. There's a lesson the book of Genesis should tell you. It's that more than one wife is not a good thing. It never ends well for, for the man in Genesis who decides to marry more than one wife. Regardless, Genesis 26 made clear that his marriages to these women made his family's life bitter and continue to make their life bitter to this day. Hear this. Whom he married declared what was truly in his heart. He didn't love the God of his fathers. He didn't believe the promises of the people of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And his marriages showed that. It was the fruit of the root of unbelief in his heart. So by way of application, hear this. Particularly young folks that are here, hear this. Don't let anyone tell you that who you're in a relationship with doesn't matter. Because who you marry matters. Because let me tell you something. When you marry them, you marry into a family. That's important to keep in mind. You're marrying into a community of people. But you're also becoming one and uniting with this person. Whom you marry matters. Whom you have sex with matters. Whom you choose to be with ultimately displays what is in your own heart. And if you give your heart to someone whose heart is hardened toward God, you shouldn't be surprised when your heart is hardened also. 
You shouldn't be surprised when what they value begins to become what you value because relationships ultimately change you because you're uniting with another person. And this means, hear me, that it's okay to be picky and to take your time. Few of us in high school or college, I can tell you, we think that they're the one. They're going to be it. And then we rush on in and we find out that we didn't know quite quite much of what we were doing, did we? And we're thankful down the road that those things didn't work out. It matters whom you're with. And Esau shows us that because if you become one flesh with someone like Esau, you become consumed with your flesh just like Esau. Whom you, who you come into relationship with matters very much. Esau is an example of that. Look, look at all the ways that, that he was led astray through this. Esau is shown by this genealogy to be prideful like Babel, to be immoral like Ishmael, who is the brother of Isaac. And finally, Esau is shown to be sinful through his lot-like relocation. His lot-like relocation. Look at verse 6. Look at this. Then Esau took his wives, his sons, his daughters, and all the members of his household, his livestock, all his beasts, and all his property that he acquired in the land of Canaan. He went into a land away from his brother Jacob, for their possessions were too great for them to dwell together. The land of their sojournings could not support them because of their livestock. So Esau settled in the hill country of Seir. Esau is Edom. So, because of their abundance of possession, Jacob and Esau couldn't live together. There simply was not enough resources on the land for both of the tribes to coexist. So they separate and notice that Esau chooses to settle away from his brother Esau and away from the land of promise and in the country of Seir. If you've been with us as we've been journeying through Genesis, this probably sounds familiar Because a similar situation happened back in Genesis 13 with Abraham and his nephew Lot. They had all of this all of this resources and they're on the land and they go, hey, we can't live right next door. We need to move away. And so Lot picks up and moves all the way to a place called Sodom and Gomorrah. And now we see Esau doing the same thing, going, Well, I could move a little bit away. Or I could move far, far, far away from God and his promise and his son of promise. And I believe that this is meant to make that comparison. And it's not a positive comparison for us. Moses is wanting us to see and to think about how Esau, like Lot, is moving away from the place of God's promise and toward the place of his own desire. Ishmael did a similar thing also, moving toward Egypt rather than the place of promise. Consider this, consider this long line of these men moving away and going their places of their own desire and shipwrecking their faith in the process. In the first eight verses, we get a brief overview of the life of Esau, and he's compared to Babel, to Ishmael, and to Lot. He walked in pride, he chose immorality in his relationships, and he chose to live far away from the promises of God, while his brother Jacob, while we've seen was far from perfect in his life, at least we hear this at the end of his story. Look at chapter 37, verse 1. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land 
of Canaan. In the end, through everything Jacob has gone through in our series on him, he's remembered for his faithfulness, being found in the place that God called him to be. He's remembered as one of the patriarchs of Israel, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, while Esau is remembered for his rebellion, being found far from where God promised to be. And friends, there is hope for you today. You might be living your life just like Esau did. You might be living your life consumed with yourself, consumed with what you want, consumed with your own desire, but through the grace of God, you can be like Jacob. Hear this. If you've been with us as we've looked at the life of, of Jacob, you can, you can see that Jacob and Esau often, in terms of their character, looked rather similar. Jacob took multiple wives. Jacob did all sorts of really, really awful things. But what made the difference over the course of their life was the grace of God. Why they were not defined by the moment, but by the finish line was because the grace of God and their faith in Jacob's faith in the promise of God transformed him over the course of his life, while disbelief caused Esau's heart to harden over the course of his life. Hear this. If God's grace is at work in your life in any way, don't reject it. If you can begin to see God's grace in the kindness of the parents he's given you, the life he's given you, the, the access to God's truth and his word that he's given you, don't harden your heart to it, but receive it and embrace it. Esau's journey far away began with a moment of rejection and ended up with him moving far, far away. Be warned from the life of Esau. Don't reject the grace of God when it's right in front of your face. But while Esau's life is on full display in the first eight verses, the chapter doesn't end there. The genealogy moves from Esau's life to Esau's legacy, to Esau's legacy. And I don't plan to reread all of, the, all of verse 9 to 43. I hope you maybe will do that in your free time, and you can look up some of these names and, and think about their impact. But I do hope we can slow down and just see over that list that Esau, by all worldly measures, leaves an incredible legacy. Verse 9 to 14, we hear about his sons and his grandchildren. Verse 15 to 19, we see that the offspring of Esau became chiefs, kind of like governors over various regions in Edom. Verse 20 to 30, we see that the, that the people of Seir, we get a recounting of their names. These were the people who were overtaken by Esau's nation. And finally, from verse 31 to 43, it says that Esau had kings. People who came from Esau were eventually kings over this nation, and that they had kings before Israel ever had a king. They were innovators with this. So this looks like a successful family line. How many of us wouldn't want our sons or daughters to grow up and become governors, military leaders, and kings over a nation? Most of us, I think, would be pretty proud of our children to be in places of that kind of prominence. We'd be impressed by this list. But as we come to this list, I think it puts, it's meant to put success in its proper context. And it shows us what worldly success can never do and will never guarantee. Three lessons for us come out of this. First, 
You can have worldly success yet not be blessed by God. You can have worldly success yet not be blessed by God. Notice, I'll say this again, something is missing. These folks have all kinds of success, likely riches and reputation, but you never hear any of them calling on the name of the Lord. God gets no attention because God had none of their attention. This is very similar to earlier in the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 4, we get the genealogy of, of a guy named Cain, and you see all kinds of success in Cain's line but no salvation. In fact, it wasn't until Adam had his third son, Seth, that then it says people began to call upon the name of the Lord. And we get the same silence here. And friends, hear this. There are preachers on TV, books on the bookshelves of Christian stores. It's everywhere. People will tell you that material wealth is always a sign of God's blessing. And I tell you, don't believe it. Don't believe it for a second that material wealth is always a sign of God's blessing. Sure, material goods are a blessing, but for those who don't know God, it's actually a curse. Consider this, what Paul says, the Apostle Paul over in Romans chapter 2. Look at this. Look what he says. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and his forbearance and his patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impotent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. See this, material goods, everything you have is God's kindness meant to produce repentance in you. But rather than let it produce repentance, many of us let it produce a rebellious heart. Esau's family certainly did. They had it all. And friends, I can remind you that no matter how much Esau's family have, we in 21st century America likely have far more than they ever had. And yet many of us allow the goodness and the kindness of God to make us hard-hearted and thankless rather than thankful and humble. Riches can be a good gift, but they can be a hindrance to a humble heart. In fact, this is why Jesus warned that it's difficult for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And many of us long for what Jesus said will make gaining eternal life difficult. Esau and his legacy are a clear lesson to us. You can have worldly success. You can be a king, a governor, a military leader. You can have worldly riches and fame and reputation in your life and yet not be blessed by God. You can have it all and yet not have the most important thing in the world. But there's a second lesson for us. Second, you can have worldly success yet not be remembered by history. You can have worldly success, yet not be remembered by history. Many times, and I'm sure this happened to you, as I read the list of this genealogy, it seems so foreign and so distant, right? It's like, man, I can't relate to this. I don't know these people. Who are these people? What is this? And I would tell you that that's actually part of the point, <laughs> There's lists of chiefs 
and kings that have been long forgotten to the history of the, of the world. Without their name written here, we wouldn't have any record of them. And let me tell you this, you will follow in the same path. Few of us will be remembered beyond a few generations at best. Consider how many presidents there have been that I couldn't tell you a thing about and that I don't even give a second thought to. Consider how many world leaders with their empires have passed away and none of us give them any thought in our life. Consider that generations come and go and few of us can name or know anything about the people beyond maybe our great-grandparents at best. So many of us think about history as the last 200 years, and yet there are thousands of years of history lost to us that we give no thought to, we'll never think about. And these genealogies should confront you with a humbling truth that you will be forgotten. Don't live for the glimmer of fame, for fame is temporary. Don't live for the false promises of riches because you can't load up all your stuff in the hearse behind you. In fact, everything you have is going to be given to someone else who likely didn't earn it. Or they're going to buy it at a yard sale for cheaper than you bought it for the first time. Solomon reminds us of this. Solomon's awesome. He just gives this great, great, grumpy old man wisdom in the book of Ecclesiastes. And here's what he says. Ecclesiastes chapter 2. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me, and who knows whether he'll be wise or a fool. Yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and under and, and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labor under the sun." Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What has man from all the toil and strife of heart for which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. One, do you see why I love the book of Ecclesiastes? Just right in your face with wisdom, but it reminds us here, all the stuff you labor for is going to be given to someone else who likely didn't work for it. You're going to be forgotten and outside of a potential tombstone in a cemetery, no one's going to remember you. Happy Sunday, <laughs> right? But it's important because this should change your priorities, this should change my priorities. This should change how we live because we believe that this life is just the prologue to a life that goes well beyond this into eternity. Many of us live for what's right in front of our face, 80, 90 years. We don't think about a billion years into eternity down the road. What's going to matter What's going to last longer than history? What's going to last beyond your life here on earth? That's what we should give thought to. Esau and his family gave no thought to it. Consider finally the third and final lesson. You can have worldly success, yet not escape death. Yet not escape death. Let's be frank. Everyone on this list 
dies. Esau, dead. His wives, dead. His sons, dead. The chiefs, the kings after him, dead. And friends, you were going to die too. And death is the great equalizer. And our culture has an aversion to death. We don't really like to talk about it except occasionally in sort of a romanticized, dark way. But friends, death is not meant to be some dark, romantic thing, but it is meant to be certain. No matter what you do, you can't escape it. You can pay off your mortgage. You can join a gym. You can eat keto the rest of your life, and you are still going to die. But death doesn't have to be the final word over your life. Because see, looming over this passage is the hope of life after death. Jacob was buried, confessing a hope that there was more to come beyond his death. Jacob went and dwelled in the land of his father's sojournings and chose to be buried there because he believed there was more after his death. And from the worldly point of view, Esau looks far more successful than Jacob. He has a large family, a successful nation, and lots of riches. And yet Jacob is the one who is truly blessed. And this is because Edom never quite realized something. They never realized that they could live a life that's well lived, and yet live a life that was eternally wasted. They could have worldly riches and be consumed by it and squander eternal riches. Esau stood on the threshold of life with God and walked away. And there are tons of us that that can happen to us as well. He believed the false promises of the culture around him rather than the promises of God. And friends, this is true for some of us as well. We think that success is having lots of money or fame or reputation. And let me tell you, no one's going to think about it beyond maybe a generation or so. I was struck. I was struck. You know, they, they still have these radio stations that are 80s, 90s, and now. And you know, it's been now for about 20 years. Have you noticed that? And I'm sitting there listening to these songs from the early 2000s, which are sort of the songs that I I lift up and I go, nobody gives any thought to these things we were jamming like 20 years ago, right? And now there's all these kids that think that I listen to old people music. And I'm really struggling with this, right? You can be a big one-hit wonder and nobody knows who in the world you are. 20 years down the road, the things that you think are really cool now, people 20 years from now are going to make fun of you for. People on, so people on TikTok, which I don't encourage you to get on TikTok, but the young folks on there are making fun of millennials now. The Gen Z are making fun of us over our hair part and our clothes and all this stuff. And so back on point here, right? I'm just so worked up about this. I'm so worked up about this. Hear this. Hear this. You can live for all of these things in the moment, but the next generation is going to make fun of you for it, (laughs) right? So Genesis 36 offers for you a turnaround. It offers you a turnaround because some of you are living for yourself. Some of us have been loving the world and longing for fame. And Genesis 36 gives you a preview of the vanity of the so-called American dream. 
of having it all, of being loved and accepted and cool in the culture. And it gives you a zooming in on what that looks like. And it allows you to have a microscope into the rotten center of the culture's delectable-looking promises. And it causes you to ask, what race are you running and how will you run it? Or to put it another way, what will you live for in light of a life that is fleeting? Because what was simply a promise to Jacob, something that Esau said, that could never happen. I'm not going to embrace this became realized in the person of Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 1.20 tells us that all of God's promises find their yes and amen in Jesus. In his life, death, burial, and resurrection, all the promises to Jacob were realized, sin was atoned for, and a pathway to eternal life was open for any and all to come. Genesis 36 tells us all of these people died, but there is one who died and came back to life. And friends, we should follow after him. He knows. He's literally been there, done that, rose again, and defeated death. And the call is to follow him. Not the cool uh, influencers on Instagram or the cool sort of micro-celebrities you might see out there, but to follow Jesus. And the only way to come to Jesus and to receive eternal life from him is to make him your supreme treasure greater than the riches of this world or the praises of men greater than the desire to be on the right side of history jesus told a parable to illustrate this for us matthew chapter 13 verse 44 look at this the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up Then, in his joy, he goes and sells all he has and buys that field. The field seems unassuming, but beneath it, there's an incredible treasure. And in Jesus Christ, there is eternal life and eternal treasure. It's as worth selling everything you have in joy in order to obtain. Because The joy found in Jesus is greater than anything that these other lesser treasures can offer. Psalm 16, verse 11. Look at this. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. If you want a verse to help you fight the temptations of this world, grab onto that one because it tells you that sex and lust, that's not where pleasures forevermore are found. Not in money or fame and power or prominence, not even in earthly love and acceptance, but at the right hand of Jesus are pleasures forevermore. And so as the culture dangles out in front of you, these nice baits that look very pleasurable, friends, realize there's a hook there. But in the presence of Jesus, it's pleasure forevermore. No hook, no bait. And imagine the foolishness of buying the field and loving the field more than the treasure buried in it. Yet so many of us love God's gifts more than the God who gave them to us. Jesus is worth giving away everything in order to have. The psalmist puts it this way. Look at this. Psalm 84, verse 10. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper 
in the house of God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. He says it's better to be a door greeter in the kingdom of God than to be a king in the world. Better to be right inside the doors of the kingdom of God than to own the kingdoms of the world. Better is one day in the city of God than thousands in the cities of man. What are we defining as true success for ourselves or for our children? Hear this. You or your children could become great athletes, yet not finish the race of faith. They could be great minds and yet never meditate on the glories of God. They could be dearly loved and yet love a world that is passing away. Success isn't bad in and of itself, but behind it is a dangerous deception. Take Esau as a warning. Cultural success can bring you riches and praise and accolades, but it can also take your soul. And today you can turn around. Jesus Christ has come to make life-altering U-turns possible. Because you can turn today from your sin and yourself, leave the path you're on, and hear and heed the Savior's voice to come and follow him. Whether for the first time or for the millionth time, God stands ready to meet prodigals. And friends, he runs and he meets you at the end of the driveway, and he brings you home into his presence. The long walk home into the kingdom of God is not done alone. The Father walks with you. And it's only, home is only seen to be sweeter after we see the pig pen of self-determination. But today, through, through this genealogy, many of us would have just skimmed over in our Bible reading plan, or some pastors would have skipped. Hear this, God is calling you to flee your life of living like Esau. And to find yourself like Jacob, trusting fully in God's grace and living for God's glory. And may we be found to have run the races, explored the depths, and dearly loved the things that matter eternally more. Let us pray together. Father God, we come to a list of names And it seems so distant and far from us, and yet you remind us that that's the point. That our lives are often distant and far, that we are small, and we have but one life to live. It soon will pass, but only what's done for Christ will last. And so I pray right now for anybody here within the sound of my voice, whether here in the room or watching online, Lord, that you would prompt in them to consider their life. To consider if we're loving a field more than the treasure hidden in it. If we're like Esau on the grasp of life with God and yet rejecting it in our hearts. I pray that you would awaken us to the life we're living and cause us to flee to Jesus in hope. He lived the one unwasted life on our behalf. And he was nailed to a cross for our sins in our place. He was buried in a borrowed tomb and then he rose again from the dead, the one man to die and to rise again in his own power, never to die again. And he promises that if we turn from our sin and ourself and follow him, we'll follow in the same path, a life of crosses, but an empty tomb in the end. 
And so today I pray that you'll reorient what we are living for, what we define as success in our life, and maybe not live for the 80 years or less in front of us, but live in light of the 80 billion years into eternity when you will still be enough and at your right hand will still be pleasures forevermore. I ask and I pray that as we worship, we worship with that in mind. And as we, as we live our life, we live with that end goal in mind. You are worth selling everything, giving away everything we have in order to have you. So may we see you as our great treasure, our great delight. And we ask and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You'll stand and sing with us, please. joy to be able to declare that it is truly well with our souls 
We don't have that confidence that it is well with your soul and, and you would like to know more about about meeting, about having comfort and confidence that you will could that you will be with God when you die and, and the hope of eternal life. Please talk to me. I'd love to talk with you here after the service if you don't have a personal relationship with Jesus to talk more about that. Just a couple quick things before we close with a benediction. If you're a visitor with us, been visiting for a little while, I'd encourage you to stop at the Get Connected, the welcome table right out here. Fill out one of these Get Connected cards so we can follow up with you, pray for you. We'd even love to give you just a little gift. And you're welcome to stay with us for our Discover class and eat some food if you happen to be here and hadn't had any plans for lunch. Uh, We do have a little bit there for a few that might uh, end up staying. And thank you always for those of you who give. As always, there's baskets at both exits and online giving available. As many of you will be traveling, looking forward to prepping for our friends and family weekend uh, this next weekend. And all God's going to do to reach uh, our community with the gospel through this. And so we close with a benediction from 1 Corinthians 15 after Paul talks about the incredible hope of our future resurrection and future life with God. He tells us this, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Amen.